The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're looking at the Pewback Bible in front of you, we're on page 895. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to take one home. Um, either take one of those from the Pewbacks or grab one from the info table. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. Y'all ready for a new series through 1 Corinthians? All right. Then you have probably not read this letter. Because um, <laughs> it's going to be crazy. It's going to be... Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, I, I think God's going to do incredible things. But what I'm not kidding about is it's going to be crazy. Um, it's an incredible letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. Um, it is full of incredible truths about God's love and faithfulness, the power of the crucifixion, the forgiveness and the grace available to those who trust in Jesus. And also, it's a letter where Paul addresses very directly some really difficult things and a lot of things that are going on in the church that aren't healthy, that don't reflect God's righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom for life, and uh, our prayers that God would do incredible and beautiful things among us in the series. And so uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray for us, but before I do, I want to welcome, again, everybody. The fact that you made it today is incredible. Uh, the fact that you came to 11 was smart. Um, don't tell the 9 amers, but you were smarter. Uh, just because you wait in Denver just a couple hours and the sun starts shining, everything starts melting, and this is a nice little balmy uh, winter Sunday. And so uh, thanks for coming. For those that are new, I want to say welcome to you as well. Uh, so glad you'd come and worship Jesus with us. Uh, we, we gather every Sunday like this to worship Jesus uh, together as a community, to grow together in our relationships as followers of Christ, uh, to learn what it means to follow him. Um, and to grow together as we look in his word together week after week. And so if you're looking for more ways to get involved beyond our Sunday gatherings, we also gather together in homes throughout the week in different contexts and formats. And so we'd love to give you more ways to get involved. So if you are interested in getting more involved, right after the service, there's a room in the back corner of the sanctuary. There's a sign that says new here. We take about 10 minutes, get to know you a little bit, answer any questions you might have and help you find some more ways to get involved. And so we'd love to get to know you after the service. Uh, before we, we dive in, I want to pray for us. Uh, we, we take time uh, throughout our Sundays to look together at God's word together. We want to worship Jesus because he's worthy of our worship. Like what we do as we sing and as we pray and as we engage with each other is worship and Christ is worthy of our worship. But another aspect of worship is to sit under the authority of his word and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Uh, that we'd be people that are letting God's word kind of move into our hearts and reshape and reform and transform the way we live our lives, that our lives would more reflect Christ uh, as followers of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do, but we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And so I want you to pray with me that God's spirit would move among us in really significant ways, not just this morning, 
Uh, but as we reflect on the truths of God's word throughout the week and as we work through this letter, 1 Corinthians, over the next year, that God would do powerful, transformative things among us. And so would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we're grateful right now that we're not alone. In this moment, you're with us. Um, Jesus, you said that you'd be with us all the time, and then you, you sent us your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, would you, even today, would you work in powerful ways to set people free, to bring people to new life in you, that people would turn to you for forgiveness, for grace, for healing, for transformation, for hope, for Christians that feel maybe worn down, beleaguered, maybe doubts are rolling through their mind and heart, maybe areas of life where they feel shame or disconnection from you would would you even today uh, draw them back because of your grace and your love to the goodness of who you are and the goodness of your reign over us? So work in powerful ways both today and throughout this series through 1 Corinthians. We pray uh, in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. I love Denver. I confess I'm a Denver lover. I think there are a lot of Denver lovers in the room. Maybe not all of you love Denver in the same way. Maybe some of you have lived here your whole life and you take it for granted. Maybe some of you have had a really hard experience in Denver. I'm aware people are coming from all sorts of backgrounds, but I'm one of those people that love love Denver. I, as a kid, would come out here uh, for spring break and crowd the mountains. You know, the people that now drive us nuts, I was one of those. So were you, many of you. Um, but I, I love Denver. I love that we get essentially four seasons. Uh, they can, the spring and the fall can be short. Um, but I also love that the four seasons bleed into each other. Like you can get like a really springy day in the middle of winter. We can get that snow yesterday, which was way more like a Midwestern, like wet snow than normal Colorado powder. Uh, you know, like normally in Colorado, you flip on your windshield wipers and you just dust it off. Not, not this time. This was, this was like take a chunk off and set it on the ground and take, you know, you guys were doing it this morning. You shovel your sidewalk. Normally you can just put the shovel on the ground and just walk. And this time it's like one, one scoop at a time as we go through it. I love this. I love this stuff. And I love that today it's, again, a beautiful, beautiful day. And it's one of the things I enjoy about it. I love the culture of the city. I do. I love that there are restaurants and coffee shops and breweries. Um, went with some friends this past Friday to a Ukrainian restaurant on East Colfax. That was incredible. Like, this is amazing. And just the fact that there are so many different places to go. Uh, my family and I, we, we love the mountains. Love it. Uh, that's kind of our main activities are like climbing and skiing. And I have this like thing that I do with my kids to kind of like um, liturgize or kind of like give them this like these little ways of like saying things that I hope will embed into their hearts. They will never leave Colorado and move away from us. Um, so every time we're in the mountains, whether we're like at Lookout Mountain and Golden climbing or somewhere in Clear Creek Canyon or, or we're skiing, um, we just kind of like, or you just are on, you know, I-25 I or on, uh, sorry, I-70 or 285 and you're just driving through the mountains, I'll just like randomly like, we live in Colorado, you know, like, and, I'll, like, and I get them to say it too, just so they can like think, yes, I guess this is good. Uh, <laughs> and uh, don't want them to take it for granted, uh, but I love it. Again, I'm aware that's not everybody's experience, right? Uh, some people, again, you've been here your whole life and the mountain stuff was, you never really got into it. Like you just kind of live, you've had your friends and relationships. It, some of you feel like meh about Colorado. Um, some of you moved here recently and there's challenges and difficulties you're facing. It's a very expensive city. It's very hard to get connected. You have a lot of unrooted people that make their way here uh, that have moved away from family. And because of that, there's not that kind of like kind of stability and maybe some of the security that creates some kind of like Midwestern warmth that you might get in other places. Uh, again, it's a, a place where financially, um, some of the things I mentioned that are fun are not accessible to everybody. Things like skiing and just even transportation up into the mountains cost money. The restaurants and the breweries and the coffee shops and the cocktails can be ridiculously expensive. Uh, for my family, like to go to like Chipotle, costs like $75. We have four kids. And the first time I like went with our whole family to Chipotle, I'm like, that's not, that doesn't make sense. And you like do the math. You're like, man, that makes sense. All right. We're not doing that anymore. Like we're just like buy, buy some like carne asada from Costco and make it at home. We'll figure this out. Um, so, so 
there are aspects of Denver that are really beautiful that many of us love. Many of you moved here from both California and Texas and Kansas and the Northwest and the Northeast, and, and you've made your way. People have come from Latin America all across the world. When we go skiing, I, I'm a chatty guy. Um, if you know me, you know that's true. If you don't know me, you might assume that's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> I'm a chatty guy, and so when I'm on a lift with somebody skiing, I'm like, hey, what's up, you know, uh, where are you from? And you're like, you're one of those guys. I'm totally one of those guys, except on an airplane, not on an airplane, but on the lift all day long. I'm a chatty guy, and so um, ask people where they're from, and just over the past couple months, you know, meet, I've met people from Poland, from France, from Miami, from New Jersey, from the Bay Area, from Texas, from Iowa, from Nebraska, just like people are coming all over to play in our, our backyard. And, uh, and, and so there are all these things that bring people here uh, for all sorts of different reasons, and some of them uh, because we want to be. Others, it's just circumstances and challenges that have brought you into the space. And here we are, and, and for as much as you might love it or as much as you might have lived around this city your whole life or might be new, there's a dynamic that you have to pay attention to. It's easy to be blind to. And that's when you live in a place for any period of time, that place will begin to shape you. It will begin to shape you. The context in which you live, the city in which you live, its values, its habits, its practices, its culture is, is powerful. And it has an ability to shape your values, your practices, your habits, your loves, your priorities, the way you relate to others. And that's happening to all of us. And part of the difficulty there is as it begins to shape us, it's easy to become blind to some of the issues, some of the, the, the dysfunctions, some of the unhealthy dynamics, some of the, what the Bible calls idolatries of a city. You can become very blind to it. When it becomes the water that you're swimming in, it, you can begin to assimilate to those cultural realities in ways that can make you blind to some of the unhealthy things that surround us all the time. And so this exists for every person in any context ever, that you're being shaped by your environment in significant ways, and you can become really blind to the ways that that culture is changing you, or if you were born into this culture, the way it has shaped you. And so what we're looking at when we're looking at 1 Corinthians is a church that has been substantially shaped by the city in which they live. Like, substantially. And the city that we're going to look at, the city of Corinth, has a lot of similarities to Denver. People often wanted to be in the city, had come from all sorts of different places, we'll talk about this more, into the city, and the city of Corinth had shaped this people, had shaped them in significant ways. In fact, it had shaped them in ways that even as people began to follow Jesus, it was really difficult for them to begin to understand how the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ might challenge and reshape or even bring and call them into transformation from the ways that the city of Corinth had shaped them. And so Paul, this missionary has come to a city of Corinth and he's telling people the good news about Jesus and people are beginning to believe and he's there for a while we'll talk about the history a little more this morning and he's there for a little while and then he leaves and a few years later he hears word about what's going on and what he's hearing essentially is that the Corinthians are looking more like Corinth than they do like Christ they just look way more like Corinth than they do like Christ and so that that ways that they've kind of adapted to and reflect their city more than their savior, that has brought dysfunction and pain into their community. And Paul writes them a letter to address those things, to address some of the, the mess that they're experiencing in the church in Corinth. And so what I want to do today, I want to give you kind of a theme statement uh, for this series. And we're going to walk through this introduction and kind of lay a foundation for what we will be doing over the next year as we explore this letter. But I want you to kind of get into the, the mind space of what Paul's doing in this letter. Here's the theme statement. God's grace meets us in our mess and calls us into a Christ-shaped vision for life. God's grace meets us in our mess. Some of that mess we see. Some of that mess we don't see. Some of it we're, we're very conscious of. Some of it we're very blind to. And God's grace meets us in that space his grace, his forgiveness, his love, but it also calls us into a Christ-shaped vision for life as opposed to a Corinth shape or a Denver-shaped vision for life. I want to draw your attention to the artwork around us. This is by a guy named John Hendricks, who's an illustrator from the St. Louis area, a phenomenal uh, illustrator. 
And, uh, and so the artwork that he's done for the series, the series is called Messy Church, Risen Lord. And what Paul's essentially doing is he's speaking to this church that's a mess. And he's saying, hey, given that the crucified Christ is risen, given that this crucified Christ is risen, that he's Lord, how might that affect these areas of messiness within your church? How might the risen Lord relate to this messy church? And so over on this side over here, uh, I guess the, the artsy word for this stuff or is, uh, is a, it's a triptych, which just means three, three pictures. And so let's just call it three pictures. Um, so on this left image over here, you have this image of a church that's beleaguered and hurting. And you, you see these forces at play, these forces of destruction and death and chaos, even the dragon, this representation of the forces of chaos and darkness that are at play in our world, both spiritual powers and our own flesh as it pulls us away from the reign of God and the destruction and the pain and the death that comes as we press away from God's reign, God's presence, God's love, and God's goodness. And that's a lot of what the church is experiencing. They're experiencing destruction and division and pain and animosity and comparison and pride and shame, and there's pain. It's a mess. And in this middle image, you see this image of a hand, and the hand is pierced, and the piercing is in the shape of a heart, this expression of God's love, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God showed his love for us. That while we were still sinners, while we were a mess, Christ died for us, and that God views the church through the wounds of Christ. He views the church through the love of Christ. He views the church through the cross of Christ and sees in this beleaguered church his people that he loves, that he treasures. He sees all the ways we fall short of his glory. And in Christ, he sees that we're forgiven, washed, cleansed, and loved. But it doesn't stop there. The good news of what God's doing in the world doesn't stop at the crucifixion, that Jesus rose again on the third day. And that resurrection unleashed a whole new new power in this world, this new creation life, where God doesn't just love us in our sin. He has the power through his resurrection to transform us, to change us, to be people that live in the light of his lordship, that reflect his love, reflect his glory, his wholeness, and his goodness in the world. And that's what you're going to see throughout this whole series in Corinthians, that Paul is going to meet people in the mess of who they are, remind them of God's grace and love for them in Christ and call them to a whole new way of life. That the messy church is meeting the risen Lord and what God is calling the Corinthians to isn't out of guilt and shame, but because of his love and his grace, he's calling them to reshape their lives in the light of Christ, his cross and his resurrection. So that's what we'll be looking at. And you'll see a foundation uh, for this that, that Paul lays right here at the beginning of the letter. So we're just gonna dive in and make our way through this first nine verses, looking at three kind of movements. First, we're going to look at the author, then the audience, and then the message, the sort of foundational message, the author, the audience, and the message. Uh, And the first thing we're going to look at is the author. The author, look at verse one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. The author, Paul is a messenger of Jesus's love and lordship. He's a messenger, the, the author of this letter, is trying to relate to the audience this message of Christ's love and lordship. His love and his lordship. If you're familiar uh, with the Bible, you might know a little bit of of Paul's history. If you're not, I think it's important to pay attention to right at the beginning. Uh, Paul wasn't like this, like, super Christian his whole life. He didn't, like, grow up as a follower of Jesus with parents who were a follower of Jesus and a whole community of followers of Jesus. And he went to all the right things and just grew up as, like, the kind of shiny, bright, Jesus-loving guy that you're like, that guy's probably going to be a pastor when he grows up. You know, Paul hated Jesus. He hated him. Paul hated followers of Jesus. You can read about this in Acts chapter 7. There's a guy named Stephen that's giving a speech to this Jewish community about Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and the people get so angry that they gather stones and they stone Stephen to death. He's the first Christian martyr. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 8, the very first verse, it says Saul, which is Paul's previous name, he stood by there approving of what they were doing. He was like for the death of Christians. In fact, he became one of the primary persecutors of the church. He would go around to different cities and he would antagonize and persecute and imprison Christians. He hated Jesus. His heart was hard. He saw Jesus as a threat to his lordship or his threat to the kingdom he was trying to build. And then in Acts chapter 9, you read a story about how Christ, Jesus Christ, who had died on the cross and rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven, miraculously and powerfully appeared to Paul as Paul was going to persecute the church 
and just changed his life radically immediately. He, he kind of knocked him off his course and, and brought into Paul's life an awareness that he really was the Lord. He really was the Christ. And Paul began to see Jesus not as this enemy of the human experience or this enemy of Israel, but that the Savior, the anointed one, the King, the Lord. And Paul gave his life to Jesus, and Jesus called Paul not just to be a Christian, but that Jesus, that Paul would become an apostle, one who would be sent by Christ to bring the good news of God's love and the good news that Jesus Christ is King to cities all around the world. And the Lord said, right at the very beginning of Paul's story, that Paul would suffer on this journey. Just like Christ suffered on the cross to bring us to life, that Paul's life would smell like Jesus. Paul's life would smell like a cross. Paul's life would smell like death by, by the ways he suffered to bring the glory of God to other people. But Paul's hope was in the resurrection, just like it was the resurrection that fueled Jesus to go to the cross for the joy set before him. And so Paul did. Paul began to kind of learn and grow, learn more about who Christ was and his story. And he went from city to city, bringing the good news of Jesus to different people. And so he went from this hard-hearted man to this transformed man, to this apostle, this messenger of God's love and lordship. And so you read about this in Acts, these journeys Paul would go on, where he'd just go through these different cities, and he'd go and he'd talk to the Jewish people in the cities and the synagogues and tell them that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, he is the Christ, he's the king, he's the Lord. He died to bring salvation and grace to the world, and he rose again as Lord. We don't have to kind of keep trying to fix ourselves to get God to save us. Jesus met us in that mess with his love to transform us. And then he'd also bring the gospel to the Romans and people from the Greco-Roman culture, telling them, you're worshiping this God and that God, and you say Caesar is Lord. He's not Lord. Jesus is Lord, calling people to turn from idols to the living God, to trust in Jesus. And people were becoming followers of Christ all over the kind of Mediterranean Sea. And this was Paul's experience, that he had went from this hard-hearted, angry, obstinate, Jesus hater to one of the most significant people in the history of the church. And I, I just want to draw out two quick implications for us just as we think about Paul's authorship. Number one, God's grace can transform messy people. God's grace can transform messy people. You, you might think like, well, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I'm at. You don't know my history, my story. I, I, I don't. Here's what I know is that God's grace can transform messy people. He, he did it for Paul, somebody who hated him, who lived his life persecuting followers of Christ. He was so antagonistic towards Jesus and towards the church and towards Christianity that he was persecuting people, approving of the, the killing of Christians. And then later in his story, is transformed by the power of the gospel. God's grace is sufficient for you. You might feel like, well, man, you, you don't know my story and, and, the, and the things that I've been involved in. Or maybe you're in a space right now where you're like, I used to be a follower of Jesus, but I've got so many doubts and I pushed away and I've been really cynical and critical to Christ. And, and now like my life's kind of, I had something is like wanting me to come back, but I feel a lot of shame to even like come back to Jesus in the ways that I feel like he's calling me back to him, but I'm carrying shame. Like God's grace is sufficient for you. He loved us while we were still enemies. He died for us. His grace is sufficient for you. Second implication is that God can redeem messy stories. Even the pain of your story, just like the pain of Paul's story, Paul became an, an apostle of God's grace. He, every letter, every letter he wrote is just like oozing with grace. You're going to feel it right here in this, at the beginning of this letter. It's, it's stunning to me. It's just like oozing with grace. He cannot believe how gracious God was to him. And so it makes him pumped to tell everybody about like how God's grace is available to them. He's like, you don't even know how messed up I am and how much grace I've received. If God can give grace to me, there's grace for you. There's grace for you. And he really believed because of his own story that God has the power to redeem and transform anybody. And that, that story, the pain of his own story, the sin and the brokenness in his own story became a, kind of a, a, a canvas through which this incredible story of God's grace and goodness began to make its way all around the world. It's shaped many of our lives. The Apostle Paul's just treasuring of God's grace. But he doesn't just treasure God's grace. He also treasures the lordship of Christ. He's not just a messenger of God's love. He's a messenger of God's lordship. You'll feel it in every letter. He will always remind people of, of what God has done for them, laying down his life, Jesus laying down his life on the cross for their sins, during forgiveness and mercy and healing. But he also calls them to live their life accordingly, 
to live their life under the lordship of Christ, saying, Jesus is Lord. God has raised him from the dead. He's in charge. He's the king. We need to begin to live our whole life with him as the authority. He gets rights to say how we're called to live and what it means to live as followers of Christ in this world. And so all of his letters will do that. And Corinthians uh, brings us into that in a really profound way. So this is the author. Second thing I want us to see is the audience. The audience. The audience is this messy church that's called by God. A messy church called by God. Look with me at verse 2. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth. All right, we need to take a minute and kind of understand the city of Corinth and how that city affected the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church. Okay, so we're going to uh, put up here on the slide uh, a map. Uh, if you're a map kind of person, I like maps. Uh, it might be a little bit hard to see, uh, but you'll kind of see the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and then what I want you to see is on that kind of the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. That's the top right for directionally challenged people um, of, of this map. You'll see the city of Antioch, and it says starting point. This comes from the ESV study Bible. It says starting point. Uh, Paul's home base was in Antioch. All of his missionary journeys started in Antioch. There's a lot of Christians there, and they would commission and pray for uh, Paul and other people to travel with him in his different missionary journeys. In the book of Acts, you can read about three missionary journeys. The first one kind of stayed closer to that area. This is an image of his second missionary journey where he planted the church in Corinth. And so he went from Antioch through what's modern-day Turkey. In the Bible, they call it Asia Minor. I went up to this city called Troas, which is right there uh, in the kind of uh, between kind of Ephesus and Turkey and Greece. And in Troas, he wanted to head back east uh, and kind of take the gospel east, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from moving east. And he had a, this dream of a man in Macedonia, which is just northeast of Greece, a man in Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia, that there are people that wanted to hear the gospel. And so he headed west and went to cities like Philippi and Thessalonica, which are in Macedonia, right there on the north side of that bay. And then he started making his way down, again, modern-day Greece. Eventually, he makes it to Athens, which you can read about this in Acts chapter 17. The Areopagus in Athens, Mars Hill, has a speech with all these kind of worship of all these, this pantheon of gods in Acts chapter 17. After that, he makes his way down to Corinth, which is right there uh, kind of on the left side of the screen. Uh, Corinth is this kind of a city that's right on this port, this bay area that goes between kind of Rome, people coming from Italy over to Turkey would make their way through this bay, through the city of Corinth. We'll talk about that. So that's, that's where Paul made his way. He made his way there on a second missionary journey. He was there for some uh, 18 months or so telling people the good news about Jesus. What I want you to kind of have in your mind and what I want to draw attention to is w when Paul makes his way into Corinth, he is an outsider. He's an outsider. He's not from there. He didn't swim in those waters. He didn't drink that cultural Kool-Aid. Uh, he is an outsider. So he's got some perspective on what's going on. And I want to tell you a little bit about what he would have experienced. Okay, uh, so here's some features of Corinth. Uh, first, he would have learned very quickly that this is a new city. This is a new city. It was actually destroyed by um, the Romans in 146 BC. It was rebuilt uh, about 100 years later by Julius Caesar. And as such, it was, a, it was a new city. And so it had all this sort of like Greek cultural backdrop, but it was the kind of Roman architecture and infrastructure that like was, was like world famous, cutting edge stuff. This city would have been like architecturally beautiful, like cutting edge kind of infrastructure in the city because it was relatively new. It was a relatively new city. It was totally decimated, 146, rebuilt in 44 BC. So we're now about 100 uh, years or so, maybe, maybe 80 or 90 years after the rebuilding. And in terms of the ancient world, that's just a, that's a relatively new city. So it's a new city. Second, it's a port city. Um, if you remember from that image, people would make their way, especially from kind of mainland Europe, especially Rome, kind of uh, capital of the Roman Empire, would make their way through this kind of um, this bay area, through the city of Corinth, on their way east. People from the east would make their way through Corinth on the way west. In fact, if you were on a boat bringing goods and kind of um, different uh, artifacts and different things through from the west to the east or east to the west, you could go through this bay and you could put your boat on wheels and roll them through, essentially right adjacent to the city, and roll them through. And it made this city a, a hub for industry, uh, commerce, trade. It was a kind of melting pot for all these different cultures that were making their way to the city of Corinth. So it's this hip city. It's young. Uh, it has uh, new money. 
And so the fact that it's this kind of a newer city and the fact that it's a port city with a lot of opportunities to make money and to start businesses and trades and goods and craftsmanship, there's so many entertainment opportunities. It was kind of a thriving metropolis. There are ways to come to Corinth and make money. You could make a living there. And so it attracted people that would come through to stay, to start up a business. And it was, it was new money. So in a lot of other places, you might feel kind of the aristocracy, the kind of like, if you want to be a social elite, you have to be born in the right family. Not in Corinth. You could be a self-made person in Corinth. You could make your way up the social ladder on your own because there are opportunities to build wealth, start businesses, and kind of climb the social ladder in Corinth. Go to the next slide. We'll kind of see some of the other features. That created a culture of status climbers. So in the ancient world, you can learn a lot about uh, honor-shame cultures, which I think are more relevant to our day and age now uh, than maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the idea of an honor-shame culture is that, that you're, you have a sense of where you fall on some social ladder, and your, your goal in an honor-shame culture is like tear up, uh, climb that social ladder, to find ways to make yourself feel honored by your family and friends, whatever that society values. And ways you could do that in this particular city was through accumulating wealth, you could climb the ladder of kind of social status by your job, your profession. You could climb the ladder of social status by your associations. There's still, again, a, a kind of a Greek ph philosophical background. So right across the bay is Athens. And so you could have, uh, you know, a few hundred years before, people like Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, others. And this, the idea of the exchanging of ideas was huge. And so the, people would boast in. I am of Socrates, I am of Plato, I am of Aristotle. What philosopher did you study under? And that could really elevate your status. And so these, these, it was a culture of status climbers. It was a pluralistic city. They had over 26 to 29 different, like uh, archaeologists have found 26 to 29 different worship centers and sites in the city with all sorts of different gods. So people coming from the east and the west, from Greek background, Greek gods and Roman gods would come here and there's like room for everybody. You're all welcome, whatever you believe, bring it in, like everybody's good here. But at the center of the city was a, was a temple to their patron goddess, Aphrodite, the goddess of pleasure, the goddess of love. And that temple, one ancient writer says, that employed over a thousand temple prostitutes. And it was totally culturally acceptable to be engaged in kind of prostitution as a temple prostitute or to go to see those prostitutes. It was seen as a way to celebrate the culture of the city. It was a hyper-sexualized city with a very kind of a sexually promiscuous culture. And it had vibrant city life. Uh, there was some, um, some Greco kind of Greek culture games, Greco-Roman games called the Isthmian games that would happen in Corinth. And people would come from all over the world to compete in academic or in athletics. In the Isthmian games, they'd also have musical competitions. You had arts that were present in this place, drama. There's all this history around there. And it created a really vibrant um, city life and kind of this entertainment hub. It was an active city. And I can't help when I'm looking through that but think about a lot of connection points to Denver. There's a lot of connection points. Denver is, like, age-wise, a relatively young city. There are people that have been here for a long time, but there's also a lot of people moving here from east and west. You have people coming from the west coast and California to try to get away from the progressives, and you have people from the Texas and Midwest trying to get away from the conservatives, and you come with these ideas and thoughts, and people that want, like, the freedom and the mountain culture, and people that want, want the pluralism or want the kind of independence, and you're kind of coming, and, and it's this place where there's, like, man, there's... there's an economy where certain industries, there's opportunities to build wealth within certain industries. You have sports that are kind of all over the city. All the major kind of sporting teams are here with all the major sports. You've got Red Rocks with concert venues. You've got just people coming here to have a good time, explore the mountains and the culture from east and west. And it creates a sort of melting pot, but it also creates a deep insecurity in our city where, again, the lack of rootedness can create a real sense of, of like, social anxiety. Like, how do, you, how do you become somebody that's, like, acceptable? What do you have to be involved in? What, what sports do you have to do? Or what, what neighborhood do you need to live in? Or what job do you need to have? Or what vacations do you need to go on to be, like, you know, acceptable? And you have people that are really kind of feeling this anxiety and this pressure to kind of, like, level up their life. And to continue to see everybody else around, they're all doing things, and they're all have this like exciting life. What do I need to do to have that exciting life? And how do I measure up? It creates a status climbing society. It's a hyper sexualized city. Uh, I think it was uh, Money Magazine a while back did an article on 
the seven deadly sins and what cities might kind of vibe with these seven like biblical deadly sins. And Denver was the sex city. And they used research based on the selling of um, different uh, fertility drugs, different things around, um, yeah, uh, contracepti- uh, contraceptives to kind of like analyze the idea of like the sexual promiscuity of Denver. And it was just like leading the list in all of these different areas of like a very sexually licensed city where kind of like extramarital sex, premarital sex is like top tier in Denver. And so it's like you feel these kind of areas where they're the same. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this city of Corinth. And it relates to our experience in the city of Denver. You, ha- you have this cultural background. And Paul comes into that city in about, you know, maybe the late 40s, 49 to 52 AD. He starts teaching them about Jesus. That Jesus of Nazareth is this man who we, who we now know to be the son of God who was crucified on a cross, bringing forgiveness and healing and redemption and love to people who had turned to him. And that he rose again on the third day to conquer sin and death and give hope of life and transformation, that he is the image of the one true God, the exact representation of the creator himself in human form, come to live among us, and that through Christ you can have life and salvation. And a lot of people heard that news and believed. And Paul spent 18 months, people coming from a Jewish background, people coming from a Greco-Roman background, this kind of pluralism, and all these people start coming and forming this new church with people from all these different backgrounds. What's fascinating to me is that the sort of conservative Jewish community was antagonistic towards the church. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. They were not pumped that there's this church that was following Jesus that was kind of growing and burgeoning in the city of Corinth. And so they brought that church before the kind of Roman governors trying to accuse them. And the Roman governors were like, we're fine with them. We're like comfortable with the Christians being here. It's a pluralistic society. We've got another God, people worshiping a different God. Game on, we're fine. And so they had way more animosity from the kind of conservative Jewish background than they did from the Greco-Roman background, which created a recipe for something that I think is really relevant for us here. Created a recipe where it became easy for them to stay assimilated and entangled with the cultural values of their city. To stay really engaged in their workplaces with people that had no history of following Yahweh or following the Old Covenant in Israel. And so the sort of pluralism, the kind of uh, sexual license, the kind of status climbing, it all began to affect the city of Corinth. And so you'll feel this throughout the letter, that the mess that we see in Corinth, point for point, are directly related to the cultural issues in the city. You'll see divisions where people are like, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. And they're trying to kind of be better than other people by their Christian associations. And Paul's like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's not how Christianity works. We're all just servants of Jesus. You think you can elevate your status by your associations? Or they'll talk about their giftedness, that their gifts with their prophetic giftedness or their ability to speak in tongues or their ability to, to, to teach in these ways or their kind of rhetoric and their ability to speak in clear ways makes them better than people that don't have those gifts. He's like, what are you talking about? That's like the Corinthian way of living, where you, where you elevate yourself based on your strengths and you demean others. You feel shame because you don't have what somebody else has. That's not, that's not the way of Christ. That's a Corinthian-shaped vision for life. That's not a Christ-shaped vision for life. And so Paul had been there for 18 months. Paul eventually leaves to continue his missionary journey. He goes to a town of Ephesus for a little while, makes his way eventually back to Antioch. Then he starts his third missionary journey a few years later. So the church in Corinth, has, he was there for 18 months. He's been gone for a few years. He makes his way back to the city of Ephesus. In Ephesus, God's on the move, like crazy gospel movement is happening from Ephesus all around. And so he's there for a couple years. While he's there, two things happen. One, he gets a letter from the Corinthians. And two, he gets a report from what Corinthians calls Chloe's people. Chloe's a a lady in uh, in Corinth, and somehow her and people connected to her. It seems like transport a letter to Paul in Ephesus, and Paul gets word that stuff has gone sideways in Corinth. And that the Corinthian church looks, again, way more like the city of Corinth than it does like Christ. And I think this is where, this is where I, I start feeling like a real significant connection for us. That, that we, as a community, we try to fit following Jesus into a Denver-shaped vision of the good life. We try. 
Uh, we try, and, and, and we try to say, okay, I, I, I'm shaped by these values and these cultures and the cultural norms and practices and habits and priorities around me, and now I just need to like, find a way to get Jesus to fit in this. And we end up living a lot like just normal Denver people, just with some Jesus like tacked on. But the, the issue is you really have to like finagle Jesus to fit him in to like the Denver cultural context. There's a lot of work you have to do. Now, here's what's hard. Here's what's hard, is it's really easy if you're living in this culture, and especially if you're the kind of person, which I said I am at the beginning, that loves a lot about this culture. It's, easy, it's really easy to be blind to all the ways that we have assimilated and conformed to our culture. It's easy to be blind. When you read the, this letter to the Corinthians, you will feel like they are an absolute mess. Did you know that the Corinthians did not think that they were an absolute mess? You know what they thought? We are freaking killing it. We are like the model church. We're the model church. We understand God's grace. We're not like caught up in all these like this legalism and these idolatries. We understand that the Lord is Lord of everything. So we can go to these temples. We can do this stuff. They're going to the temple prostitutes still. They're living in the sexual license of the city saying, hey, our body doesn't even matter. Christ was crucified. The resurrection and the future don't even understand that exactly. But we, there's a freedom to live the way we want. They are stacking their, their own value and their own sense of their worth on top of other people based on their achievements and their wealth and their career and their associations. And they just think it's good. All throughout this letter, you'll, you'll hear Paul saying, and you are boasting in this. Like, you're not hiding it. You're like, this, this is how free we are. And they felt like they were super gifted. They were financially wealthy. They're a financially wealthy church. Paul's raising money for some churches that were in a hard spot. And so he goes to churches like Corinth because they have a lot of funds. They have a lot of money. And so they're helping raise money. So like, well, we are the benefactors of all these other struggling churches. We are intelligent and we have good rhetoric and we know Greco-Roman philosophy and we're culturally connected and we're not stuck in the traditions of the past. And then I start feeling like, oh, no. I wonder how blind we might be to some of the ways that our culture is shaping us. I wonder. I wonder if the the Denver culture has shaped our, our vision of life, our vision of our purpose, our vision of our worth, our vision of how we relate to one another, our vision of our strengths, our giftedness, our vision for our bodies, our vision for our sexuality, our, our vision for our engagement with the values of the city around us, but also our engagement with the broken things in the city around us. I wonder if Denver is shaping that more than Christ. And, and my sense is that God wants to do some really significant things. Our issues aren't the same as the issues in Corinth, but there are connection points. And our, our goal through going through this letter will be say, what, what is that issue? What's the messiness that's going on in the church? How does that relate to us? How does that connect to us? And what does the risen Christ have to say about that? And what does it mean for us to begin to develop a Christ-shaped vision for life? Not just for our Sundays or our small groups, but for all of our life. I think God wants to do spectacular things among us. So what I want to see last is this is this foundation of the message. And we see it in verses two, uh, kind of these themes that Paul will sow into the beginning. And the message is essentially this. Don't forget who you are and who you are called to be. Uh, Corinthians gets this vibe, even in calling it messy church and risen Lord, we kind of address the mess from the beginning. And it gets this vibe as a, as a church that Paul has some really direct things. So somebody shared with me on our staff, Jennifer, this uh, meme that I think is just, I just, you know, I thought it was funny, and you kind of feel some of this. This is what it says. There are two main types of Pauline epistles. Number one, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of God's unfathomable grace that leads to incomparable glory. And number two, I am, as a personal favor, begging you sick little freaks to act normal for five minutes. <laughs> and and, uh, and in one sense, you kind of feel like that's what he's going to say to the Corinthians, right? Like, I... So one of you is sleeping with your stepmom, okay, and you're proud about it. And then, and then a bunch of you are going to sleep with temple prostitutes, and you're, like, proud about it. And you've got this whole, like, schism division. Like, you're with Paul, and you're with Apollos, and, like, you're, like, some of you are, like, I got baptized by Paul, and some of you are, like, I got, like, and you're proud about it. You're, you're taking your gifts, and you're, like, lifting them, and you're proud. Like, you feel like what he's going to do is, like, what the heck? You know, like, that's what I feel like. I'd be like, I'm begging you sick little freaks. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, just act normal. Like, don't be crazy. And that, you know what? That is not what Paul does. 
It's actually not what Paul does. It's what you might do or it's what I might do. Um, You're like, not me, okay. Well, it's what somebody might do, hypothetically. But listen to what Paul says right at the beginning. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, the verb tense there is to those who have been sanctified, set apart. Those that have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and our Lord. Paul does not begin by rebuking their mistakes, their weaknesses, or their issues. He begins by reminding them of their identity in Christ, who they are. In this whole letter, he's going to remind them of who they are, and he's going to call them to become and to live into who, he's, who God has called them to be. You see right there, number one, they're, they're sanctified. Who are they? They're sanctified to be God's holy people. Right? It says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. The, the word sanctified and the word saints is the same Greek root word. Both, both of them have this idea of being set apart. You have been set apart by the work of Jesus. When Jesus laid down his life to, to bring forgiveness and cleansing, he was setting you free from the cultural idols that are shaping you. And he was setting you apart to now be a people that represent his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his beauty, that you would shine like salt and light in the world, that you would be distinctive people, that your life, the way you think about your relationships, the way you think about the culture around you, the way you think about your sexuality and your body and your marriage and your singleness and your gifts and your weaknesses, the way you think about all of it would be like a bright, distinctive, beautiful light that's holy, that's saints, that's set apart, that you've been set apart to live set apart. You have been sanctified to be sanctified. You have been set apart to live a distinctive life. This is who you are. You're the church of God. And he lays that foundation. He doesn't say at the beginning, so whack like it. He just names it. This is who you are. You're sanctified to be God's holy people. The process of discipleship is the process of being freed from the destructive and dehumanizing ways of this world and transformed to reflect the beauty of Christ in his kingdom. Christianity isn't about like trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, then follow arbitrary rules. It's believe that the God who made you has designed a way for us to live as human beings and to thrive. We turned from that. We rebelled against him and ran towards destruction and death. To become a Christian is to say, I went the wrong way. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I turned from the goodness of God, his love, and his reign. And so I'm going to turn back to God and wonder upon wonders. What I see is a God who's chased me down with his love who sent his own son and laid down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, to wash me and cleanse me and to reconcile me to God and to now teach me what it means to live according to his lordship, his reign, his goodness, not to keep living in the destructive patterns and habits that I was living in, but he set me free from living according to those ways that bring destruction and pain and death into the Lord, into the world, and he's transforming me to be the kind of person that lives for Christ and lives for his kingdom the way he made me as my creator, my redeemer, and my king. We are sanctified to be God's holy people. Second, we are recipients of God's grace. Look at this, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, hey, you've been sanctified to be set apart. Now let's get after it. Like, here's all you got to fix. The first thing he does is like, God's grace be to you. He knows his own story. He knows how much grace he had received. And so he's so eager to remind them, grace to you, grace, grace. I'm going to say some hard things. I'm going to address some issues directly. I'm going to call some things out. I'm going to say some really uncomfortable things. But I want you to hear all of this. All of this is in the context of grace to you. Grace, Park Church, grace to you. We've got a, we've got a mess that we see. We have mess that we don't see. Your own life has stuff that you're working on. You're also blind to things that you have no idea how like, dysfunctional you are. Me too. I've got this like, just jumbled up heart, my motives and my insecurities and my pride and my just propensity towards self-sufficiency and independence. It's all at play. That's all at play. It's, it's here. It's not like I didn't like, tuck it away somewhere and then come up and preach as this like, fully like, holy. Like, I, have a, I have a mess. You have a mess and we have a mess. Grace to you. As we work on this mess, Paul wants to lay a foundation of grace. Grace to you. It's really easy these days to just draw attention to all the jacked up stuff that you see in church or in churches, whether it's a church you're a part of or this church or others. And I think it is so important to be able to be honest about dysfunction, unhealth, sin in church. It's really important. But it's 
important to do that in a context of grace. And in fact, the grace of God gives us an environment where we can do that in really beautiful and constructive ways versus in critical ways that tear down. And Paul lays a foundation of grace into which he's going to start saying some really direct things, but never turning away from the grace of God that is there for them. And he says it right there in the next verse. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He sees this incredibly dysfunctional church. He's going to name all the stuff. He says, I'm so, I'm so thankful for you. God has been so gracious to you. When I look at you, Corinthians, I'm like, wow, God's really gracious uh, because it's a mess. But I'm like stunned by God's grace and I'm really thankful to see God's grace at play because and, and he felt that as a reflection of the grace he had received in his own life. He was an apostle of God's grace. He reminds them that they are recipients of God's grace. Verse 5, he reminds them that they're gifted for Christ's purposes. He says this, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's saying you, you guys are so gifted. I mean, you've got people that are so good at speaking and so good at learning. You have people that have these prophetic gifts and these gifts of grace, and you have people that understand languages and can interpret languages. And like, What an incredibly gifted community. God has poured out his spirit on you. You know what he doesn't do right now? He's going to later draw attention to the way they misuse those gifts, the ways they abuse those gifts, ways they use those gifts to exalt themselves over other people. But, it, but he affirms the giftedness as a beautiful expression of God's love and kindness towards them. It's like he encourages them. You guys are so gifted. And I, I feel that for our church. Like it's an incredible church. The stories of God's grace in this room and the ways you all live your life, seeking to be faithful to Christ and his kingdom in different contexts with the gifts, the strengths, the resources that God has given you is beautiful. It's beautiful. And what does it mean to be able to affirm that without thinking like, and we've got nothing to work on? No, there's a ton to work on. There's a ways that God wants to continue to transform the way we understand that that we'd actually be able to unleash those things with a fuller expression of love. That's what he's going to do in chapters 12 through 14. How do you show love with those gifts? He, he's going to do this over and over and again. You're so gifted. He said, what an incredible gift. He says this in verse 8. Who will sustain you? This is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says you're strengthened by God's power. He's not saying you guys are going to, I'm going to write this letter, you guys are going to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and it's going to go great. If he was confident in the Corinthians' ability, he would not be, it, would, it, was like, it was not a place where they were giving him any sense of confidence. His confidence was in God's power at work within them. That Christ had the power to heal, to transform, to change, to redeem. God had the power. And he reminds them that they're strengthened by Christ's power. Verse 9, he reminds them that they're secured in God's faithfulness. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So he has a sense like, yes, you trust in Jesus as the crucified one who rose again on the third day. You, you trust in that. You're following Jesus. But there's a, a man, you, you look more like Corinth than like Christ. But I'm confident that the God who saved you has the power and the faithful commitment to you to continue to redeem you and change you and present you blameless. So that when you stand before God on the last day, he will see a blameless, beautiful bride, a beautiful church, washed, cleansed, transformed by the power of the gospel. And his confidence is not in the Corinthians' ability, but in the faithfulness of God. We, we were singing this morning in our prayer time before the service. Rebecca was leading, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. And think of the history of this church. Think of the history of my life, your life. What does it mean to be a church that's confident, not in who we are, but in God's faithfulness towards us? in the midst of all of it. We're secured in God's faithfulness. This, this journey towards maturity. God's, Paul's going to call out that you guys, you guys are like infant Christians that were like drinking milk. And I was kind of hoping that you'd be able to eat meat by now. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. You're still, you still need milk. So I'm going to feed you milk. I'm going to feed you milk. But we're going somewhere. We're going towards maturity. We're going towards living your life with this Christ-shaped vision for life. We're going somewhere. In the midst of that journey, God is faithful. He's so faithful. He's gracious. He's strengthening us. And this last line is just so interesting. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In these first nine verses, some phrase of Christ, Christ Jesus, or Christ Jesus the Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ, shows up nine times. In these nine verses, it's incredible. 
It's like when you're reading it and you read the Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, our Lord. It's overwhelming. And it's like Paul is trying to kind of like front to them. Hey, I'm reminding you of God's grace. I'm reminding you of the gifts God has poured out on you. I'm reminding you of God's power and strength to grow you and mature you. I'm reminding you of God's faithfulness to you along the journey. But I'm also reminding you that Jesus, the Savior of the world, is the King, and he is Lord. And in that foundation of God's grace, I'm calling you to develop a a Christ-shaped vision for every aspect of your life. That's where the world is headed. That's where creation is headed. And that's where you are headed. And he's reminding them at the beginning that Jesus is the risen Lord. And he's going to do this over and over and over throughout this series. He's going to take the resurrection of Christ, that Christ Jesus, the crucified one, who loves us and laid down his life for us, is risen. And if Jesus is risen, if the Lord is risen, how does that risen Lord meet a messy church? And he's going to start applying it again and again and again. And I think God is going to do beautiful things for us as we think, what does it mean to be a messy church that's beginning to encounter and experience and transform our life around the beauty and the glory of the risen Lord. May God do spectacular things among us to redeem us, to transform us, to forgive us, and to change us to be a holy people in Denver for his name. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you even now. Um, There are so so many things I see in my own heart and so many things I see in our church family uh, that I know that we need forgiveness and help and transformation from. But there are also a lot of things I don't see in my own life, a lot of blind spots, I'm sure. And I know there are blind spots in our own church, things that I think you want to address, things that I think you want to bring forgiveness and mercy, but also freedom and transformation. And so throughout our time, uh, spending time with you in these gatherings, discussing these things in small groups or reading your word in home, would your Holy Spirit be working? to open our eyes to the areas where we're still living more like the way of Denver than the way of Christ? And would you bring repentance and forgiveness and healing and love, that we'd be people that live in this city but not of this city, that we'd be people that love and celebrate the things that you love and celebrate but that bring your gospel to bear and the things that need to be addressed and transformed and redeemed. And so would you help us, Holy Spirit, anchor us in your grace, remind us of your faithful love, and change us to the power of the resurrection, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to invite communion servers to make your way forward. It's interesting to me at the center of this letter, kind of a culmination piece in chapter 11, when Paul has addressed a lot of, a lot of issues, he, he then addresses issues around their, their corporate gatherings, in particular the way they thought about the table. That they thought about the bread and the cup of wine, and would use even those moments as ways to divide and ways to separate and ways to elevate themselves. And Paul reminds them of what this meal is about. He, he reminds them that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it and he, and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's like a new way of relating to God. It's a new way of relating to one another. And it's through the blood of Christ. Something that brings unity and oneness together. People from all different backgrounds, all different experiences, coming together around the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, remembering his grace, his love, his power, his presence there with them as a community. His sense was that the cross and the resurrection brought healing. And that's why we celebrate communion week in and week out as a community. Remind us that God's power at work in us comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus, nothing else. This meal is for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Nice catch. That was phenomenal catch, I think, um, that, that this is for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus and would look to him, not merely as Savior, but as Lord. And so this isn't for perfect people that have got their life together. Uh, this is for people that are acknowledging, hey, I'm a mess. I've got, I've got stuff in my heart, and that's why I need the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That's why I need his forgiveness and his mercy. And there is mercy for you in Christ. There is mercy for you in Christ. So for all that are in Christ, we're going to invite you to to participate in this meal together. If you're not yet a Christian, we'd ask that you not yet participate in this meal. We're glad you're here. We want this to be a a place where you can engage with the claims of Christianity, learn about who Jesus is, what he came to do, what it means to follow him. Our hope for you is is unabashedly 
uh, that you would follow Jesus. We really believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to, to their creator, God, the Father, except through Christ. We believe that, but we also know that there's a journey, and there are questions you might have, things you're wrestling through. Uh, we've been there. Uh, many of us still there in different ways, and we'd love to walk with you in any way we can through that. Uh, but for those who would put their faith and trust in Christ, we're going to celebrate this meal together. We have alcohol-free and gluten-free options in the two corners of the sanctuary. And uh, what we're going to do through the Corinthian series is we're going to recite a corporate prayer together. And so I want to invite you uh, to stand together with me. And we'll pray this uh, together around some of the themes of Corinthians and how it relates to the table. Would you pray this with me? Lord, as we come to your table, we acknowledge that without you, we are a mess. Open our eyes to the ways that we have been shaped more by our culture than by Christ. Forgive us and free us through the power of your crucifixion and transform us by your spirit through the power of your resurrection that we might be united as your holy people to reflect your love and glory to the world. Come and eat and drink and remember God's love for you. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.